When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Today's guest is a former professional golfer who won the Women's Australian Open in 1997 and was a two-time winner of the Australian Ladies Masters before joining the commentary ranks in Australia and abroad. She wasn't done playing, though, with five appearances on the world team in the Handa Cup between 2010 and 2015, winning in 2013 alongside the likes of Jan Stevenson and Laura Davies. The same year, she won the Fry's Desert Golf Classic on the Legends Tour with two-time Women's US Open champion Betsy King. Born in South Australia, she joins us from her adopted home in Arizona. Today's trailblazer is Jane Crafter. Well, thanks, Steph. It's so great to uh, to be with you, uh, and I was delighted uh, to get the email uh, that I would be, have a chance to chat. So uh, very excited, and uh, really thanks for having me. It's great. Well, it's been a while since we've got together and since we've seen you down under with the border closures coming into play just after the 2019 Australian Women's Open. What's life like right now where you are? Uh, you know, it's... You still can go out. We're not under any lockdown. Um, but usually, I mean, I've had uh, my two shots of vaccinations back in February and March. And so life is a little bit more normal, although we're starting to get an uptick here in the States and especially in Arizona of that variant that really is a problem. So, you know, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, be careful, you know, wear a mask uh, every, pretty much everywhere I go that's inside, uh, entertained a little bit, haven't really seen a lot of my friends and obviously not seen my family, which uh, is a shame because I, I really miss them. And I'll give a shout out to uh, my little great niece, Millie, who is two years and two months now. Yeah, time flies, doesn't it, Jane? You are, of course, a dual citizen, Australian and American, and you watch the Olympic Games in Tokyo from the American perspective. Golf into the competition again. What did you make of it? I really enjoyed watching the golf. Uh, it, I thought the Australians did uh, very well. Minji probably didn't do quite as well uh, as I was expecting, but Hannah Green had a terrific, uh, terrific event and just narrowly missed out on uh, on getting a bronze. She really rallied. And I think if they hadn't had a rain delay there with a couple of holes to go, I really think that, uh, that she could have made it onto the podium. But Nellie Corder, well... You know, we know in Australia how good she is after she won the Australian Women's Open at Grange uh, in 2018. So it's been fun to follow her and Jessica, really, for that matter, uh, both of them Australian Women's Open champs. And, uh, you know, I, I thought golf uh, acquitted itself extremely well in the Olympics. It was, it was really fun to watch. 
back to the quarter family they're absolutely extraordinary i remember when jess won in melbourne and we were working on that tournament a six-way playoff to decide the winner it was crazy days brother seb quarter a wonderful wimbledon debut earlier this year dad peter of course a tennis star uh, how well do you know that family uh, actually i know them fairly well you know ever since i was doing uh, golf channel uh, and watching jessica really come out on tour you know, walking around, watching her, I would, uh, you know, chat with Peter and Regina, the mum. And, you know, I really enjoyed talking to them both. They're very intense, especially Peter. But I do remember Jessica telling me one time that she didn't even think that she was going to be the best golfer in the family. She really predicted that Nellie would be the best golfer in the family. And, you know, lo and behold, I I think uh, her prediction has come to fruition. It's interesting. You know, I, I think this has been great for Jessica to have Nellie out on tour with her. I think it's really kind of rejuvenated her. You know, she went through that period where she had some pretty major jaw surgery and had to take time off. And when she came back, uh, you know, started playing very well. And of course, she won the first event uh, of the year this year. So I think it's really been great for both of them. They're, uh, they're terrific kids. I, I can't say enough positive things about them. I just wonder what it was like going to school with the Quarter family. And every time they have a sporting <laughs> event, those kids turn up and you say all the parents would just be saying, yeah, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a little overwhelming, wouldn't it? They're pretty impressive. And Sebastian too. I mean, what a great little tennis player he's turning into. Wow. He's going to be, uh, yep. it's going to be fun to watch him. It sure is. Just back to the Olympic leaderboard. Inami, a silver medal and one very well-known name in the mix, Lydia Ko winning bronze. You've yeah. pretty much watched Lydia grow up in the golf world, haven't you? I, I really have. Um, you know, ever since, you know, she came to the forefront from New Zealand when she was 14. I mean, one you know, the New South Wales Women's Open at age 15 just burst onto the scene. And, you know, when you think of all of the years, I mean, what is she now, 24, I think? 23, almost 24. It seems like she's been here forever. You know, you I've watched her mature, you know, from, a, from kind of a gawky little kid with big glasses uh, and not great teeth to becoming quite the young, uh, very well put together young woman who has gone through quite a bit when you think about it. Uh, you know, she had one teacher for a very long time, came over to the States, kind of went away from that method, has gone through a couple of other different teachers. But I think she's landed on a really, uh, really great situation now with Sean Foley. He's been Justin Rose's coach. He's not only a good physical coach, but he's a really good mental coach. And I think it's been good for Lydia. Uh, and I'm happy to see her medal again. Very touching what she said about playing for a family, playing for New Zealand and playing for a grandma who recently passed away. So great kid. One of the probably, along with Lorena Ochoa, probably they're the two nicest golfers I think I've ever met with great hearts. Absolutely lovely. And and you're right about how much she's changed. I remember when she had those oversized glasses and, and one year came back and she'd had the LASIK surgery. And I, I remember mm. not recognising her at all. That's right, exactly. <laughs> she, she'd suddenly grown up into a young woman. Now, you mentioned the Aussies. Uh, Hannah Green, a great mm. tournament, as you said, finishing just off the podium in a, in a share of fifth. How have you seen her development? You know, I think of all of the Australian youngsters coming up she was always the one that impressed me the most I, you know having watched her through 
the Australian Women's Opens over the years that I've commentated and seeing her sort of burst onto the scene. And I think there's something that sets her apart. She's just an extremely strong in the mental, mental game and the focus game. Yes, she's gained a lot of length this year, which has been good. I think she worked out hard um, during the pandemic and, you know, really gained a lot of uh, distance off the tee, a couple of little tweaks to a swing from Richie Smith, her coach. But yeah, I think Hannah is, she sort of sets herself apart. She reminds me a little bit of Kari in that she's so mentally strong. Minji, I think, has a terrific game and is very streaky. But I think Hannah's probably going to have a little bit more consistent career. Now, Minji hears this, she's probably going to get pretty mad at me, but that's my opinion. So that's, <laughs> that's, what, I've, that's what I've seen, you know, over the years that I've watched them both. Well, you know Minji pretty well. You've kept a close eye on her progress over the years. Were you surprised by her Olympic performance? Uh, a little bit of a letdown, I think, from Evian, you know, from winning her first major. You know, the travel is not easy, you know, and I think travelling to, you know, to France and then to Tokyo, it's it's not easy. So that could be part of the reason, maybe a little bit of a letdown from that uh, breakthrough, you know, maiden victory in a major. So... Um, you know, I think Hannah probably prepared, although she, she said she didn't prepare quite as well as she would have liked because of weather and stuff in Perth, but I think she was probably a little bit more ready to go mentally, perhaps a Minji. And tell us where the game is at over there. Of course, uh, Australia and Asia struggling to host international tournaments at the moment. Yeah. What's the state of play in the US? It's so difficult to get the players back here. And, and what yes. does that look like for the women? Well, here right now, it's no problem. Um, the LPGA and the PGA Tour have been hosting events. The men are starting to have more fans out on tour uh, as the vaccination rates have gone up. Personally, I think probably a little bit too soon because things are looking a little dire in certain parts of the country at the moment. You know, it's got to be so difficult to host tournaments. You know, you, you can only go by the local and state regulations, you know, if they're allowing gatherings uh, of more than a certain number of people or with masks or without masks, you really have to abide by each different location. Um, but it's much easier to get around in America than it is going from country to country, obviously. The LPGA at the moment is over in Scotland and then they'll be having the uh, AIG Women's Open at Carnoustie, which should be uh, definitely worth a watch. But yes, it's very difficult for the players, uh, our Aussie players, to get home, to come back. Uh, I know Adam Scott had been talking and he's found it really difficult, you know, this past year and a half uh, with trying to navigate, you know, home in Switzerland, can't go back to Australia because of quarantine, new babies, his family, haven't seen them. Yeah, it's really, really hard to be a professional athlete right now, given all of these situations. It makes me feel pretty safe and secure and not having to travel as much right now in my life, being at the age that I'm, you know, not playing much. And I've had, you know, some physical issues with, uh, with knees and stuff. So, you know, I really haven't been playing, haven't really been traveling a huge amount either. Um, so yeah, I, I think all of the players, I mean, hats off to them for what they've managed to accomplish really in this last year and a half. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. 
Jane Crafter is our trailblazer today. Jane, the Australian Women's Open is always a treat for the players. Now, because they haven't been able to come here because of the quarantine restrictions, means you've also missed a chance to head home. Uh, how tough has that been? You know, I, I really do miss it. I mean, I've had a great opportunity of coming home at least once for a very, very long time, sometimes a couple of times a year, which is great. My niece, uh, Lucy, had a little girl back in, uh, well, she's two little over years now, and in her first six months, I was able to see her twice, which was great. Uh, but in the last uh, year and a half or so, I, I haven't seen anyone. I really do miss coming home. I miss waking up to the magpies and the kookaburras and, you know, just a glass of uh, Sean Smith Sauvignon Blanc. <laughs> We, we miss sharing that with you, Crafty. Uh, of course, yeah. it's been in Adelaide the last few years, the tournament, and, and that's a chance for you to go back to your childhood, really. Uh, tell us, what was it like? Did you have a, a pretty halcyon upbringing in South Australia? Well, I mean, we had a terrific time, Neil and I, uh, as kids. You know, Neil's my only brother, 18 months younger. And, you know, when your dad's a golf professional, it just doesn't seem that far-fetched that you might end up getting into golf. Although both of us played, you know, quite a bit of other sports. You know, I played tennis and a little bit of softball, a little bit of ball. Neil played cricket and footy. Um, but we both ended up gravitating to golf. You know, we grew up not too far from the beach and we always loved the beach. Dad loved fishing, you know, and both mum, uh, dad and, and Neil and I, we'd all go out on the little boat and catch some fish and come home for brekkie and pop them in the fry pan, you know, just good old fashioned Aussie stuff. You know, Neil and I go to the footy together in the winter and we've, we're very close. You mentioned following dad in, into the sport and with him such a big name in the sport, it, it feels like it would have been a natural occurrence. But how did your involvement start? Were you one of those little toddlers that carried around a, a plastic club? Actually, I still have my first golf club. It's a little cut down hickory mashy. So it's a little and it's about maybe about three feet long. And I have it downstairs with all my antique golf clubs. And that that's pretty much an antique, that one. But yeah, I mean, Neil and I both gravitated to golf, uh, you know, when we were probably five, six years old, you know, we'd go uh, up with dad to the to the golf course, or we'd play you know, nine holes at the par three at North Adelaide. And when you're that age, it doesn't really matter how you play. But as you get a little bit older, you know, we both took it up pretty seriously, you know, 12, 14 years old. And, you know, we'd go with dad to Flagstaff Hill golf course and, uh, and hang out all day. And he'd help us on the range and we'd go play and practice on the putting green. And so, yeah, it's um, it, it was sort of a natural, really, to, to start playing golf, even though we, we both love doing other things. Neil ended up being an extremely good amateur, won the state amateur a number of times, represented Australia in the uh, Eisenhower Trophy over in uh, Hong Kong, which was very cool. I got to watch him. Yeah, you know, it was just sort of one of those things that uh, we both loved. Uh, Neil actually now is a golf course architect and that is sort of following in dad's footsteps as well, as much as I did becoming a professional and then doing commentary. I've seen uh, some a few little uh, posts that Rob Williamson puts on Twitter of some of the old commentary of Peter Thompson and dad, you know, with the state opens and things like that and some of his idiosyncrasies of the way he says things, you know, they missed that by a whisker, you know, those sorts of things I say. And I suppose I've unconsciously picked those up in my commentary over the years.
so beautiful. You're both living a legacy to dad, if you like. Jane, you mentioned the balance in your young lives for you and Neil. These days we see young women and young men, of course, committing their entire lives to their golfing career while they're Mm. still quite young. What was the development pathway for you into professional golf, as it were? You know, it was was I was very fortunate because the South Australian Ladies Golf Union at the time before it became Golf Australia or Golf SA, the South Australian Ladies Golf Union had a wonderful junior advancement program. And many of us youngsters joined that and we had competitions, you know, throughout the year. We'd have annual matches against Victoria. We would sometimes have them in the country of South Australia or we'd have them, you know, just south of Melbourne or whatever at Sorrento or border town or, you know, wherever. And that was terrific because, you know, you had great players, people like, you know, Jane Locke and Sandy McCaw. And then you'd have, you know, Sue Tonkin and Kathy Whitford and also a Jan Dale, all sorts of great young junior players who some of them ended up turning professional and some of them ended up just becoming wonderful, uh, celebrated amateurs in, in Australian golf. So that was a great start. And then, of course, the state union would, uh, you know, have you go on trips, you know, the interstate matches, the Australian Open, Australian Championships. The state ladies golf union did a wonderful job with young juniors uh, back when I was playing. No doubt they still do. I felt like I got a great opportunity to play. And then, of course, as I got a little bit older and a little bit better, you know, I was able to represent Australia a number of times, you know, over to uh, to England and Belgium and New Zealand and Canada and Indonesia, places like that for terrific events, the Canadian Amateur and uh, the Queen's Syracuse Cup and the, you know, the Tasman Cup. So things like that, the Commonwealth Series, there were terrific opportunities for amateurs. And I think for me, you know, I, I never did win the Australian Amateur. I was runner-up uh, to uh, Lindy Goggin one time. But when I missed out on what I thought was a really good opportunity to represent Australia for the uh, Espirito Santo, you know, the World uh, Amateur Team Championship, after I had had a very successful season, I thought, you know what, do I want to stay an amateur or do I uh, and have other people direct my opportunities or do I want to make my own opportunities and so that's really at the end of 1980 when I missed out on that opportunity is when I decided to turn pro and a number of people said well maybe you should try Japan maybe America is a little bit too much and I thought I think I'd rather go to America because it's going to be a little bit easier way of life even though I had done a couple of years of Japanese to be in Japan full-time would be I think a real a real challenge, you know, make you really homesick. Whereas I think America, uh, that's where the best are. I want to, you know, see see how I compare. So that's kind of my path really to professional golf, Steph. Just jump to 1997, winning the Australian Open. How hard is that to do, to win at home? It didn't seem that super hard because I had already done it twice in the Australian Ladies Masters. But yes, I think winning at home, I think it's got harder and harder for young players to win at home. It seems like it's almost like Americans trying to win the US Women's Open. It seems harder for them because it means more. And it's harder for us because it means more. Often for international players, Australian Women's Open is just another tournament, another championship, even though it is a national open of quite some significance. But I think it is difficult when you start to really think too much about it. 
you know, I was in a stage in my career, I think really 1990 to 1997 was probably the best part of my career, having won one uh, tournament here in the States and then being able to win those two ladies masters was just fantastic. It was, it was a good field. You know, we had some great players. We had Laura Davies and Arnica and Lisa Lot Neumann, Jane Geddes. We had some really good players. So I, I think for me, those three victories that I had in Australia will always be very, very special. But the Australian Women's Open will always be the most special because it is your national open. That was a huge thrill. Throughout your career, any advice from dad? I think I read once <laughs> yes. that you said he, he had some advice about something to do with a phone booth. Yes. Now, the phone booth. Now, let me go back to speaking of phones, you know, before the days <laughs> of email and, uh, you know, cell phones, he would often leave me like as long as the answering machine would go, which would probably be about a minute. He'd often leave these little messages with little tips, something to do with my putting <laughs> or whatever. So I'd come home from being on the road or, and I'd find, you know, like half a dozen phone messages from dad on the answering <laughs> machine. But yes, the phone, the phone booth, you know, he really wanted me to, how shall I say, just focus for a certain period of time that you needed to. So you didn't have to concentrate for five hours or four and a half hours. You just had to concentrate for that little period around making the shot. So he wanted me to feel like after I'd, you know, picked the club, to stand behind it and visualize the shot. And in doing that, visualize opening the door of an old fashioned phone booth and then stepping into it, going through my pre-shot routine, you know, visualizing the shot executing the shot and then visualize opening the door again and stepping out. It would be say 30 seconds of serious concentration, but then you would leave that experience behind and then you would go on to the next shot. And I have to say the 2019 senior women's open at Pine Needles that I finished tied for fourth, I really was excellent in doing that. I would say, especially on the weekend, the first day I, I didn't play great. I was a little bit nervous about the whole thing. But on the weekend, I felt like I really executed that extremely well. And the result was quite successful. I mean, tied for fourth, I thought, at age 63 was pretty darn good. And uh, so, you know, I might just go out on that high as far as senior women's opens go. I'm, I'm not sure I want to <laughs> test, test my luck anymore. They look pretty hard. <laughs> oh, crafty. That's not too shabby, I've got to say. Thanks. Back when you were in Adelaide, it wasn't all golf. You managed to become a pharmacist. I did. I did. And I think that's one thing that both mum and dad um, stressed upon Neil and myself is the importance of a good education. And Neil got his degree in architecture and I got my degree in pharmacy. And I always sort of gravitated to sort of things, medical science type things. I thought about perhaps going to medical school, but then I, I couldn't cut things up. So I just decided, no, that pharmacy would be a better option because it didn't require any dissections of anything. So um, I thought also that it would be a good opportunity or a good job that would give me an opportunity to uh, play as much amateur golf as I wanted. So once I graduated and did my uh, year as an intern, 
I registered with Foldings Company, which was like a clearinghouse for pharmacists. You know, if someone went on holiday or they they wanted to take a break, you know, three weeks or so, I'd say, okay, I'm available these dates. And I would slot in in different, you know, parts of the city for a few weeks at a time. And then I would take time off and go travel and play an interstate series or an Australian championship or whatever. So it worked out really, really well. And The nice thing was it was going to be a really good occupation to fall back on if the professional golf didn't work. And so I sort of gave myself a five-year plan when I left. If if I felt like I was making progress and I could keep my head above water, uh, after five years, I'd go ahead and stay. And if not, I'd, I'd come back home and pick up being a pharmacist. And I guess it's okay. I'm still here. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Former Australian Women's Open winner Jane Crafter is talking golf and her extensive career with us today. Jane, the move to the States, a bold move, as you mentioned, uh, from a golfing perspective, maybe it would have been less brave to stay in the Asian region, but you went to the States and went to beat the best to be the best. How hard was it? It was It was pretty challenging. You know, I, I was quite homesick for a while, uh, but I have to say the American people that I met were extremely kind and very hospitable. And I made some great friends amongst the players that I, you know, played with. I, I didn't get my tour card until the July of 1981. I missed it on my first try. I unfortunately uh, caught bronchitis at the qualifying school and, and missed that. But that was a good thing because I actually ended up playing on what they call the uh, WPGT, which was a women's professional golf tour, mini tour. And on that tour, I won twice. And so I learned almost to become a professional without the extra pressure of becoming an LPGA member. Uh, So when the second qualifying school of the year rolled around in July, I felt much more ready and uh, my game was ready. And so I was successful there, got my card and, uh, you know, the rest was history. But it did take a good few years, I think, really to, uh, to find my feet. But I was at a time, you know, on the tour where the pressure wasn't quite as great uh, and there weren't quite as many good players. So I managed to keep my head above water. I had a good sponsor. He helped me. Just really nice people all over the country who I got to stay with and make friends with and uh, that helped me along the way. So, you know, it's one of those things that you can't really do on your own. You just have to have good help. And uh, I was very blessed in that uh, in that regard, still uh, friends with a lot of the people that I stayed with in those early years. So it's it's been it's been great. I've I've enjoyed myself. I want to ask you about your qualifying school because we throw around the term Q school quite quite yeah. easily in the in the golfing world, and it makes me laugh because of course someone that hasn't been there, it makes me think of all these young golfers walking into a classroom. For for our listeners who perhaps aren't familiar with what you go through to get a tour card, can you just explain the the premise behind Q school? Well, back when I uh, first came on tour, probably there would be maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty players tiered up. And at the time when, when I uh, played on in the, in the qualifying school, it was a four-round tournament and the official would set a score. So if you beat a score of 72 holes of 300, you would get your tour card. And as it happened, only nine players in my qualifying school made it. Now, wow. it's evolved over the years. You know, before, well, let's see, it's probably changed quite a bit in the last four or five years. 
But say 10, 15 years ago, they used to say, okay, the top 25 will make the tour. So basically you're playing for your livelihood over four rounds. It's, it's pretty wow. nerve wracking. Um, I was actually doing quite well until the 10th hole of my last, last round. And then I hit it out of bounds off the tee. Oh, and I made a double bogey and I ended up I think having to get up and down from the side of the green like three times in the last three holes to squeak in by one so yeah it was it was extremely nerve-wracking things have changed you know as things evolve over the years there's different ways now of maintaining your tour card or getting it you know the men you have to play the developmental tour and then the top 25 get onto the tour all sorts of different things but as they say, Steph, back in my day, it was 72 <laughs> holes for your career. Let's see how you can handle that. That still sounds pretty nerve-wracking to me. Yeah. Tell me, though, for the kids coming through these days, before they even get to that point, how do they get spotted? Do, do they have someone on the course one day? Like if you're playing around, could you see a kid that looks pretty good and recommend them somewhere? Or how do they get recognised? That's, that's a good question. I think these days... There's so many golf clubs that have great junior programs. And I think uh, the drive, chip and putt program, which, uh, you know, Augusta National helps out with the USGA, the RNA, they all help out with that. There's all sorts of different ways. Uh, girls golf, USGA, LPGA, girls golf. There's so many options. You know, there's so many possibilities of ways to get into the game and, and excel. And then you've got high school golf teams then you've got college golf teams so you've always got coaches sort of out at these junior events looking at you know American Junior Golf Association tournaments there's all sorts of kids from all over the country playing at these tournaments and then you've got these coaches from colleges going oh I've heard she's really good or I've heard he's really good you know I'm going to vie to get a scholarship for that person so it's sort of like a, a big, you know, it starts out here and it's a big feeder down to the college golf system. Mm. And then from the college golf system here, then there is feeder professional tours, you know, many on the men's side, the Symmetra tour on the women's side, European players have options overseas as well. So if your child has some talent, there are many, many ways for them to succeed if they have the desire. Uh, to succeed it's just a matter of you know wherever you live having someone spot you you're right that excel someone will spot you <laughs> <laughs> well that college golf system or the college system for sport in yeah. the states always sounds like uh, the dream to me if you want to be a successful professional in your chosen field but Jane you and I have had long discussions about uh, the players that come through the Asian countries and on the women's side we see them feature strongly on the leaderboards throughout the women's game what is it that makes them so dominant I think there's a few things uh, especially in Korea and South Korea they're system is set up for success. We talked about the American system of, you know, uh, junior golf associations, tournaments, and then high school feeder tournaments, college. On the side of the, the Korean, the Asian players, you know, they have uh, similar things, only they have like step up tours where there is like a prof almost a professional amateur tour. Then they go into 
like a under tour and then they go into the Korean tour. And then when they're really successful there, some of them venture over to the States to play in some of the opens or, you know, like uh, the, the British open, things like that and become noticed. And if they happen to win an official LPGA event, well, then they're offered membership. So both Japan and Korea, Thailand, especially China starting to get more into golf as well. Um, it's it's a big thing. And I think the Olympics have really put a spotlight on some of the smaller, not the smaller countries, but the lesser known countries for golf and given them an opportunity to really shine. But I would say Thailand is probably one of the biggest improvers or the biggest, uh, they have a huge number of players on the LPGA now, not as many as South Korea, but a lot of players. So there's, it's impressive and they work very hard. All their families get really behind them. They want them to succeed. They will sacrifice a lot uh, for their success. Yeah, what does a childhood look like? I think it would be, it wouldn't be my ideal childhood, but, you know, cultures are so different. And, and I think it's difficult for us, you know, as Australians or as Americans to imagine that because that's not sort of how I think as having not been a parent, but see, having a lot of parents wanting diversity and wanting options for their kids they don't want to decide too soon where their passion might lie or where their destiny is but I think you know some of the Korean families yes this is a big opportunity for them you know maybe they're not very uh, well off maybe they're quite poor this is an opportunity for them to escape that and have a really grand opportunity at success in life but it is different. I think a lot of us can't quite wrap our heads around what that is like. Even though, you know, growing up for me, I mean, I, I love playing golf and I would go out before school and I'd get up early and I'd go wheel my buggy over to Kiyonga and I'd practice for an hour and then I'd come home and get ready for school and, and go and play after school and into the twilight. So I suppose it's not really that different, although, you know, I still played a lot of other things as well at school. So, you know, each culture is uh, very, very different. You're listening to Trailblazers with Stephanie Brands. Jane Crafter is our Trailblazer today. Jane, I feel like golf is a little bit ageless. How often do you still pick up the clubs? I know, I know you spoke about a couple of niggly injuries, but you had recent success. Are you, are you still out on a course regularly? Uh, I haven't been lately. Uh, this past February, I had a partial knee replacement on my left knee and the right one's a bit dodgy. So that's going to be replaced <laughs> in uh, October. So after, I think after that, I'll start to feel much better and, and enjoy my golf. I've taken some time off, which actually hasn't been bad. But, you know, prior to that, yes, I was playing quite a bit on, uh, on our Women's Senior Tour, which is called the Legends Tour, although it's now recently changed its name. It's called Legends of the LPGA, which is pretty cool. You know, we recently had a senior US Open that Annika Sorenstam came out of retirement for, which was fun to watch. I think uh, senior women's golf, we've got some great players and I would like to see it uh, start to blossom a little bit. Kari has a few more years before she reaches 50 and be able to play in the Senior Women's Open. And that, I would like to see that uh, match up between Annika and Kari. Your Kari doesn't want to think about becoming a 50-year-old, but 
some of us are pretty excited by the opportunity, but I do love the game. You know, I, I've been blessed to be able to stay in it with the commentary, you know, having retired from the tour, uh, the LPGA in 2004, you know, I started doing TV in the late 90s, uh, part-time. And then once I retired, I started to do a little bit more. And I've worked for some terrific people uh, at NBC, ESPN, Golf Channel. And now I still do a few PGA Tour Lives, which is a digital streaming of events that the PGA Tour puts on. And, uh, you know, they cover a couple of groups in the morning and a couple in the afternoon. And we see all 18 holes. And it's, it's terrific TV because I think if you're a passionate golfer, it's fun to actually see the ebbs and the flows of someone's game. You know, uh, I've been blessed to follow Tiger, uh, many, many holes of his, which have been fantastic. So, you know, I, I think I can't complain. I've loved, I've loved my uh, career as a player. You know, whether I play any more tournaments in the future will, will have to remain to be seen. Maybe some of them will be more for, for hit and giggles, but it's uh, the, to be able to commentate on some of the best in the world and have a front row seat to excellence has been uh, such a blessing. It's been great. It's always a treat to hear your thoughts when you're you're watching other players who've come through, and some indeed that were playing alongside you. We still see Laura mm. Davies go around. Who were the players that you enjoyed? The era when you were in your prime, who were the most fun to catch up with and, and fun to play with? Let's see. Well, Laura was always fun to play with. Uh, you know, uh, if you like getting out driven by 80 yards, that was uh, <laughs> that was the part I didn't enjoy that much. But when you manage to beat her, even though she's out driving you by 80 yards, that was that was pretty fun. I think some of the people I really enjoyed playing alongside were, you know, players like Kathy Whitworth to have been able to play uh, alongside the woman who's won the most golf tournaments ever, male or female, was phenomenal. And one of the stories I remember playing with Kathy in uh, Seattle, and there was a par four where there was a big tree that you sort of had to go around uh, to the right side of on a par four. And, uh, you know, I hit my drive and, you know, the other player hit their drive and Kathy hit hers and it hit the tree. And she just grabbed her three wood and just went storming off muttering all the way along they really should take your tour card away just shaking her head anyway the ball had just dropped straight down she took a three wood hold the three wood for an eagle two after muttering <laughs> that they should take her tour card away that was a classic so you know to to have, to have played with players like that Nancy Lopez I mean you couldn't get a nicer nicer person uh, Lorena Ochoa, I was able to play with her one time in her first ever LPGA event in Tucson. Uh, her brother was caring for her. And I think ever since then, even when I retired, we got to know each other those two days. And then when I was doing TV, she would always take that little bit of extra time if I, or always be gracious about doing an interview, even if it wasn't convenient. So to have built up those uh, relationships with players that you played with and you know, later, uh, you know, commentated about or, you know, uh, announced. It's very special. Uh, and, you know, they got to know you and you started to, uh, you know, you, you knew them, but you didn't want to give away any little secrets. You knew what to keep back, even though you wanted to impart some personal story or a little tidbit about it. You knew what to keep back as a, as a friend rather than, uh, you know, as a TV personality. So. Do, do you still get to catch up much outside of golf and not, not 
during commentary or anything like that. Do, do you get to catch up with him? I know you've got an open door at your place for Aussies. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> no, it's interesting. You know, um, uh, Minji Lee and her mom stayed with us in Phoenix right before her rookie event, rookie year, or in her rookie year for the tournament in Phoenix. And I got to spend some time with her. And then I would often have... Um, you know, players like uh, Kari and Sarah Camp and and uh, Minji one time, we all got together at, at my house for, for lamb chops on the barbie. And it was fun. Four generations of Australians. It was really pretty special. You know, the players that I played with, I'm still very good friends with. And that's the nice thing about, you know, our, our legends of the LPGA tournaments is that we can all get together and, you know, we'll have little putting competitions you know, before the tournament begins only this time we'll have a glass of Chardonnay at the hole, you know, having little bets as to who might uh, buy the wine for dinner. So, you know, the relationships that you've made and the friends you've made over the years, you know, still stay. And I think, you know, in the during the pandemic and not being able to play that much, I, I do miss catching up with my friends. That's for sure. Tell me, though, having moved into commentary, is it more fun than playing? It's a lot less pressure because you know you're going to get a paycheck. <laughs> um, I still get nervous, you know, you know what it's like, Steph. I mean, you still get those, uh, you know, those on-air, you know, beginning jitters and then you sort of settle in and it's a bit like playing. It, if you didn't get first tee jitters, you you wouldn't be alive and, and the same sort of thing. I do, in, I have enjoyed commentating. Uh, I've enjoyed being on the course and I've also enjoyed, you know, being in the booth. I think sometimes being in the booth is good because you get a little bit more of an opportunity to, you know, elaborate on situations than you do on the course, which sometimes can be kind of staccato, you know, little uh, snippets here and there, depending uh, on the situation. But I, I, I try not to be overly critical, but if, if someone's really hit a terrible shot, I mean, I'm not going to say, oh, you know, what a shame, you know, I'm going to say why, why it happened and try and get into you know, the mindset of people, you know, why did someone do that? Not just say they did it because it's television, it's not radio. You can see that they've done it. So you have to think about why they did it and what they're feeling. And I think if you're a former player who's had success, you're uniquely qualified to be able to um, to, to feel that and to let the viewers know exactly what that feels like and why they hit a shot or what they might be feeling at a certain time. You know, one thing I think, you know, the, the NBC has done over here in Golf Channel is have a couple of the, the guy caddies be on-course commentators like uh, Jim Mackay, who, who caddied for Phil Mickelson and John Wood, who caddied for Matt Kuchar. Now, I think they can explain what's happening on the golf course, but they don't know what that's like to hit that shot under that pressure. They can only know secondhand, which I think is interesting. I, I'm not sure what I think. I mean, I know what I think about it, but I'm not sure that anyone really cares what I think about it. But my personal opinion is I think they would be better off with players because the players are uniquely qualified to know and not just think that they know. Well, your commentary gives you a front row seat to the players on tour at the moment. Tell us, as we look into the future for the women's game, what are you mm. keeping an eye on? Who are you keeping an eye on? And uh, are there any dark horses, if you like, that, that we should look for? The, the Indian girl ranked 200th in the yes. world to finish fourth at the Olympics out of the blue? 
Yes and no. She's had success on the European tour. Um, I think, you know, she's she struggled a little bit with length because uh, she did, you know, have a bout with COVID only a couple months ago. And so, you know, had lost about 15 yards. Normally she's not quite that short. But tell you what, what a short game that young lady has. And one of the nicest people you would ever hope to meet. She's been out to Australia a few times. Lovely kid. One player, I think, well, she's not really that much of a dark horse, but she won the ANA inspiration, the old Dinah Shaw, as Patty Tavatanakit from uh, Thailand. That young lady pretty much has it all. She is long and strong and fearless. You know, there's some, there's some pretty, pretty darn good players coming up. It's hard to pick any of them. I, I'm just really big on, on our young Hannah. Hannah Green and Minji Lee. I'd like to see Sue O sort of start to pick it up a little bit as well. And Sarah Kemp's had some good tournaments recently. So must be uh, the training oh, in your back garden. I think so. Yes, it was the <laughs> uh, it was the Henschke and the and the lamb chops. Got to be good. Hundred <laughs> percent. Oh, Jane, there's so much to look forward to, and I hope that we can look forward to sharing a Henschke very soon. It'd be nice to see you in person again. But for now, it's been wonderful to hear about your experiences. Thank you so much for sharing that with us and being today's trailblazer. You're welcome, Steph. It was great to, to catch up with you. And uh, hi to all in Australia. I miss you guys. <laughs>